Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession is from Proverbs 25, verse 14. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. All by itself, this proverb might seem a little odd. Clouds and wind without rain are like a blustery, overcast day. And these are fairly common, so what's the big deal? In context, this verse makes a little more sense. Israel was an agrarian society, and they were dependent upon the rains for the growth of their crops. And clouds and wind were usually a decent indication of God's generosity to them. Moreover, this verse comes right on the heels of a comparison that describes the faithful messenger who refreshes the soul of his masters. So in contrast to that, the windbag who falsely proclaims his generosity is a sore disappointment to those around him. There are several things to draw from this. First, and obviously, don't be the windbag. Instead of boasting about plans, or emptily professing intentions, wisdom focuses on being good. Being good means doing good. Do good instead of talking about it. The need for real generosity is desperate. There are hungry and thirsty, cold and exposed, needy and despairing people who need kindness. But unfulfilled promises are empty. And more than that, they are cruel disappointments for those in need. Second, false boasting is a trait of wolves in sheep's clothing. Both Peter and Jude compare false teachers to clouds without rain. Second Peter 2, these are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Jude 12 and 13, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn le- trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled out by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Christians are called to discern boasting and lies. And we know that false boasting is not neutral or harmless. When God speaks, He backs his words with his reality. They come into being. We are God's people and we are called to imitate him. Therefore, because his words are not empty, our words may not be empty. This is why Ananias and Sapphira died when they lied to the Holy Spirit. And what were they lying about? About their generosity. And God blew them away like the empty clouds they were. Words are powerful, and God judges them. Finally, 
Generosity is a dish that is best served quietly, without boasting. God is the God who sees our hearts and judges the secret things. When it comes to doing good, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do your generosity before God and not for a reputation, lest you have your reward as the hypocrites do. God sees in secret, but he rewards openly. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please me. The Bible tells us about God and his relationship with mankind. And what we find out about that relationship in the Bible is that it is covenantal. And the covenants of Scripture have consistent covenantal patterns. This is evident in the structure of our worship service, as I laid out for you in, through our worship series. It's also evident in Scripture. The, the Pentateuch is a covenantal charter for the nation of Israel. The first five books of the Bible are a covenantal charter. And there we see evidence of a five-fold covenantal pattern. There's five books, and they each represent an aspect of covenant-making, covenantal charter. And it roughly corresponds to our worship service pattern. So we have the call to worship, where God... God initiates. God calls us into being. It corresponds to the book of Genesis, where God, in the beginning, God created and brings everything into being. And, and so he either initiates or he intervenes in the story to, to reinitiate in the call. And in confession, or in the book of Exodus, we see God's mediation. God's mediation between himself and mankind. God saves his people, and he stipulates the way in which he may be approached. So in Exodus, we see him saving his people from Egypt and telling them, you need a tabernacle in order to approach me. In consecration, which corresponds to the book of Leviticus, we see everything that has to do with the sanctification of God's people. All, God defines what the new covenantal relationship looks like in Leviticus. It's a legal code for the dividing up of the holy offering and so that his people might be sanctified and ascend into his presence. So the Levites were the ones who were entrusted with that duty to be the mediator between God and his people. And so that book then corresponds, it teaches them how to sanctify them. So we have all these laws telling them about what it means to be holy. Our communion a portion of our service corresponds to the book of Numbers, which uh, communion and the book of Numbers is all about judgment. It's about discerning and bearing witness. It's about peace and festivity. And it's ultimately about Sabbath rest. It's about God's people coming into their own, receiving the promises of the covenant relationship, or the curses of disobedience because of the judgment that comes upon them. 
And then the commissioning or the closing of the service corresponds to Deuteronomy, which has to do with remembering the past, proclaiming the present, and looking forward to the future. It's about blessing and cursing. It's about God giving his marching orders to his people, and it's about covenant succession. So we see the, the song of Moses at the, at the end of Deuteronomy, where he, he teaches the people a song to sing and to memorize, so they would remember who they are, where they've been, and what the consequences of disobedience are. This pattern is also evident in the Ten Commandments. God's ten words, his ten laws to his people. It, you can divide them up into two tables of five. And the first table has to do with God's relationship to man. And the second table has to do with man's relationship to his, to his neighbor. So commandments one and six correspond to the call or the initiation. It's, it's God as the giver of life. As God is the giver of life, he is also the one who is allowed to take it. We are not. Man cannot take life. God brings life. Uh, the second and seventh commandments correspond to the confession, the, to mediation. God for, as God forbids the marring of his worship through idolatry, non-prescribed mediation is what idolatry is, he also forbids the marring of his image in the, mo the most intimate relationship that, that, that he created, which is man and woman together in marriage. We are in his image, and he says, do not commit adultery. And then in consecration, sanctification, because we bear God's name, the third commandment, we must discern what is holy and profane. And this goes along with discerning what belongs to us and what does not belong to us. The commandment against theft and stealing. Commandments 3 and 8. And the communion, judgment portion of our service or of the covenant corresponds to God setting aside a day to remember, to test, to judge us, his people. He gives us the Sabbath. And Sabbaths are about grace and mercy and kindness. We are commanded to, to exercise generosity on the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath is a test for us. It's a test. And so when the Israelites did not keep God's Sabbaths, they were judged for that because they didn't pass the test. Similarly, God calls us to be faithful in our judgments of one another. We are not allowed to speak falsely in judging one another. We're not supposed to bring a false claim against our brother. Commandments 4 and 9, communion and, and Sabbath. And then finally, the commissioning or the succession portion of the covenant corresponds to the 5th and 10th commandments. As God ordains our origins, He gives us our parents. We don't have any choice in that. He's in control of that. Our submission to and honoring of our, of our parents is rewarded with long life. And similarly, acceptance of God's will and the absence of covetousness is the recipe for prosperity in the future of God's people. So the, 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 the fifth and tenth commandments are aligned in their view towards the future. So here we have all this covenant pattern that I'm talking about. And now I want to bring this down to the book of Leviticus, which is also structured according to this covenantal 
pattern. Leviticus 1-7 through is about sacrifices, where God calls his people and tells them, this is how you have a relationship with me. Chapters 8-16 through are about mediation. It's about putting priests in place and about how, how they achieve atonement, all the way up to the Day of Atonement. Our text today is about, uh, is chapter 17 through 22, is about holy living. Specifically, because we bear God's name. We bear God's name, therefore we must be holy. So if you were paying attention when I read through Leviticus 19, and if you were counting, you would have counted 15 times that God says, I am the Lord, in that one chapter. I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. We bear God's name. We must not do it in vain. That's about sanctification. It's about holy living. Chapter 23 is about Sabbaths. And chapters 24 through 27 are about covenantal succession. And we'll be getting into those as we finish up this mini-series on Leviticus. Now the reason that I have spent so much time in our introduction talking about covenantal pattern is this. Our text today is the heart of Leviticus. Leviticus is the book of consecration in the Pentateuch. And chapter 17 20 to 22, our section today, is the section of consecration in the book of Leviticus. And furthermore, the chapters themselves in this section can be divided up covenantally. Chapter 17, life belongs to God. It's about the sanctity of blood. Why is blood set apart? It's because the life is in the blood. Life belongs to God. Chapter 18 contains laws about sexual sin and idolatry. Sexual sin and idolatry. It's about, about uh, the, 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 the confession portion of, of, the, of the, uh, the covenantal pattern. Chapter 19 is a list of both moral and ceremonial laws that are explicitly connected to being sanctified and bearing God's name. It's that third consecration portion of, of this section in the book. Verses 1 and 2 introduce the chapter. They read this way. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That is the purpose. And this is, this is that, chapter 19 is the heart of the book of Leviticus. Chapter 20 requires judgment. Chapter 20 is a list of penalties for the breaking of the laws that he gave us in chapter 18. He says, don't commit idolatry or adultery in chapter 18. And chapter 20 is, uh, look, if you commit adultery, this is the penalty. If you commit idolatry, this is the penalty. So it's about judgment. And, uh, and the meeting out of judgments are a means to stay blessed in the land. And this is very important. I'm going to read verses 22 through 24 of chapter 20 because this this uh, judging that God is doing for his people in, in chapter 20 is blessed judging. It's judging that's supposed to be bringing good things to his people. It's not just because he wants to kill kill you for doing this and kill you for doing that and kill you for doing the next thing. So in verses 22 through 24 we read, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. 
And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. This is the purpose of God making his people holy. This is the purpose of God consecrating them so that they can have the promised land. So that they can have life without death and destruction. So that they can be set apart for God's glory and for their blessing. And he concludes the chapter with this. And you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. The purpose of this chapter is that, and, and of, of, of covenant with God is that we are called by Him, His name, and we are His people. And in conclusion, the chapters 21 and 22 give us the regulations for priests and the accepted offerings. Uh, well, these, are, these contain ceremonial laws primarily. They're regulations for the priests that they must stay clean for God's service and not profane God's name. And regulations as to which sacrifices are acceptable so that the people can, can remain in the land under God's blessing into the future. He's, he's, he's telling the priests, you must remain holy so that I have a mediator between me and my people when they sin against me. You are the ones who are called then to atone for them, and this is how you do it. And the entire section, chapters 17 through 22, is closed off with the following. 22, at the end of chapter 22. Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name. But I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. There's a lot of I am the Lord going on here. There's a lot of repetition of that phrase. And it's because Leviticus is the third commandment book. And this section is the third commandment section of Leviticus. This is all about us learning what it means to bear God's name and not do it in vain. So as I've put forward, chapter 19 is arguably the focal point of the entire book. And it falls at the center of the book, at the center of our text, and it's com comprised of both ceremonial and moral laws with that regular refrain of, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. Leviticus is a book of laws. And this part of Leviticus, chapter 19, that I read before I started, is a list of laws. One law after another after another. I am the Lord. Here's another law. I am the Lord. Here's another law. And from this, we can decipher that being God's people, being holy, being consecrated, entails obedience. Doing what he tells us to do. Do this and don't do that. And one of the reasons we find this book so confounding today, like this, modern Christians just don't really get into the book of Leviticus very often. And it's really frustrating. It's, it's, it's that intermixture of ceremonial law and moral law. You know, if, if God would just make it straightforward and say, okay, this is the ceremonial law, and you can disregard that now, but this is the moral law, and, and now you have to pay attention. For Christians. 
They're, they're intermixed. Why is don't hate your brother and love your neighbor, verses 17 and 18, placed right next to don't let your cattle crossbreed or plant two different kinds of seed in the same field or mix linen and wool, verse 19. Why? What's that about? Or why is don't trim your beard or get a tattoo, verses 27 28, right next to don't make your daughter a prostitute. That one's still binding. I hope it's okay for us to trim our beard. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm in trouble. Um, the answer lies here. The chapter opens with this injunction to be holy, for I am holy. That's what the chapter's about. It's about holiness. This holiness is universal for the people of God. It's, it's all-encompassing. It means that it encompasses both worship and practice. Worship and practice. We must be holy entirely. How we approach God must be holy, and then how we go out and live that faith in the world must be holy. That's the distinction between the ceremonial law and the moral law through Christ. The ceremonial law finds its fulfillment and completion in the work of Christ at the cross. And therefore it's no longer binding on us. While the moral law is teaching us what it is we are supposed to do when we go out those doors into the world. How are we then to live? How then shall we live? The moral law tells us that. The ceremonial laws functioned as a tutorial for God's people, and they're no longer applied. So for instance, for example, it is perfectly fine for you to wear a linen wool blend sport coat or dress now. That is not prohibited for Christians. It's perfectly fine for you to cook up a good hot ham and some bacon for Easter. That's just fine. The reason you couldn't back then was because that, that blend of garment was holy, and you were not. You were not. The high priest could wear that blend because that's what his garments were made out of. But the people were not set apart. They were not holy the way the high priest was specially set apart. So they could not wear those. And the high priest could only wear certain garments at certain times of the, of the year. When he was going into the Holy of Holies. And then he had to put them in a holy place and take them off and watch before he desanctified so he could go live his normal life. Trimming your beard and getting tattoos were pagan practices, and preventing it was a visible means that God used to separate his people from the world. Be, be separate. Be distinct from the world. Similarly, the blood, which was the means through which atonement was made, was forbidden to God's people. And the priests, they were... Um, the whole priestly system, the, the, the priests being set apart, were the medium by which God worked with his people. So they have all these special ceremonial laws by which they had to wash and be clean, and, and all these rules about how they approached the temple and how they approached God. And God, in Christ, tells us, here, drink my blood. 
And then he tells us, look, all of you are a holy priesthood. All of you are a holy nation. So these ceremonial restrictions seem legalistic to us, but these things were tutorials for God's people till they could reach the revelation of the mystery of God as given in the gospel. They were training wheels. My wife has been telling me a couple times over the last few weeks about how odd it is that we are so legalistic with our kids. So, you know, you can only use five squares of toilet paper at a time. Because otherwise, half the toilet paper in the toilet's plugged. It's, it's a mess. You have to be legalistic. They need these training wheels. We have, to, we have to be patient with them. And it's not because it's wrong to use six squares of toilet paper. No, it's because there's a principle of let's not be wasteful here. Let's not cause a problem. And this rule attains that goal for now. When you're older, you can figure out your own specific little rules. Those, those, those guiding rules, they, they're, re, they're relieved as, as we grow and mature. But because they don't understand the principle yet, they need the law. And this brings us to the holy people and sexual sin and idolatry and judgment in your outlines. It's one point. Holy people and sexual sin and idolatry and judgment. Not all of the law was ceremonial. And the moral law is every bit as binding today as it was then. If you've read Leviticus chapter 18, you probably notice the detail to which God goes in prohibiting sexual sin. And this is not an accident. God didn't say, oops, I got carried away there and just put too much down. No, it's not an accident. Sexual sin is a gross perversion of the image of God. And this is why idolatry and sexual sin go hand in hand. When men rebel against God in their hearts, they soon turn to rebelling against God in His design for their sexuality. But because, because of the perversity of our hearts and our propensity to rebel against God, the Bible does not mince words or leave any wiggle room about sexual sin. So we see the prohibition of defiling the degrees of consanguinity, which is a big fancy term for don't marry your mother, your sister, your aunt, or your in-laws. Don't do that. Chapter 18, verses 6 through 18. Don't commit adultery, verse 20. Don't commit homosexuality, verse 22. And don't commit bestiality, verse 23. Lots of details. And right in the middle of this, verse 21, we see the prohibition of offering children in fire to Molech. Idolatry and sexual sin go hand in hand. And God ties it to the false worship of the nations that they are replacing. These things those nations did. Don't be like them or the land will vomit you out. And chapter 20 prescribes the punishment for violating these laws and they are strong. As God does not take this sin lightly, idolaters and adulterers are sentenced to death. This is for the people of God. And that is not permitted in his house. 
Similarly, Paul tells us how sexual sin defiles differently than other sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20, we read this. Flee sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, that's a very broad term, and it's any kind of sexual perversion. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And because you belong to God, you may not commit sexual immorality. You may not commit sexual sin. But in the midst of condemning sexual sin, Paul does give us hope. He doesn't leave sinners who committed these sins abandoned to death and damnation and no hope. In the lead up to what I just read, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So he doesn't back off of the truth here. He says, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So he never backs off of the truth of what he's saying. But he does give us this hope. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He can cleanse you from sexual guilt and shame and sin. He can set you free from that bondage. And then you see, he turns right around and says, but don't go back there. Don't go back there. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You've got this hope, this freedom from that. And we must say this, there's great hope for those who are sexually defiled. Jesus sanctifies, washes, and justifies them. But saying this is not the same thing as saying that God doesn't care about it anymore. Or that God doesn't judge sin or high-handed sinners. And this is something that the contemporary church has much to answer for. The capitulation of the church to the LGBTQ crowd is morally reprehensible. Just this week, the PCUSA denomination officially changed their constitution to allow for homosexual marriages, practicing homosexuals, and to give their blessing to it. This flies in the face of clear and direct teaching in Scripture. I do want to be clear here, lest I be taken to single out the gay sexual problem as, in, as different than any other sexual problem. Sexual sin is sexual sin. And just because there's an ick factor to homosexuality doesn't mean that God doesn't say the same thing about the blatant disregard in the modern church regarding other sexual sin. Fornication, which is otherwise called sleeping around especially before marriage, and divorce, Jesus tells us, is, is, is a cause of adultery. 
And these have become commonplace and accepted in the church, broadly speaking. But this should not be. We are God's people. We are His temple. We should be holy. And it goes hand in hand with idolatry. It goes hand in hand with the abortion epidemic in our culture, which is all about liberating sexuality. Let's kill babies. Where's your God? Who's your God? That are, we need to be declaring and proclaiming this truth to our culture, that we stand in the path of God's judgment. We belong to Him. We are His temple, so we must be holy, free from defilement and the lusts of the world and its idolatries. Because this kind of folly is an open invitation for God's judgment on us on our culture, on our churches, and on, our, on, on us. I want to close with a brief comment about the Levites. The book of Leviticus is named after the tribe, the Levites, Leviticus. It's pretty obvious. The holiness of the people was entrusted to Aaron and his sons, the priests. That was their duty, was to, to maintain holiness among the holy people. They were who were called to be the mediators between God and his people. They were the ones who were called to approach God and to make atonement for the people. But this was a temporary arrangement. Exodus 19 verse 6 tells us that when God called the Israelites out of Egypt... His intention was to make them a nation of priests. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. That's what God was telling Moses. Now this has been fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, all of his people are drawn into his body. We are all sanctified. But the glorious part of this new covenant is that he has written all this law no longer on tablets of stone, but on our fleshly hearts. He binds these truths in you and in me by his spirit in our hearts so that we are empowered to do them. And thus Peter tells us that we are being built up a spiritual house a, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this whole book of Leviticus that we've been studying is our book. It's for us. It's telling us about how are we to mediate for the world. And one of the ways we do that is by judging. We no longer need a mediator in the sense of we don't need new sacrifices, we don't need the blood of bulls and goats. We have the mediator. We have Jesus Christ. We have the God-man. And he is God. So because we are his body, we have direct access to the Holy of Holies. We have true cleansing and washing of sins. So that, And this is the kind of cleansing that the Israelites could only dream of and anticipate and hope for. So let us be faithful to be the chosen priesthood. To be the anointed, set-apart ones, to offer ourselves to God in purity 
and service for His glory and for our blessing as a kingdom of priests. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. not bear his name in vain. Every time we come to this table, we put on his name. In sacrament and faith, we put on his clean white robes and his blood covers our sins. His seal is put upon us and we bear witness to his word. We assent to his teaching and we confess his name to all the world. This is both a privilege and a warning. If we do this in hypocrisy, we do it to our own destruction. But if we do this in faith, God has life for you. Live it richly and fully. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.